These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. So we're going to start out uh, as we look at the successes and some of the challenges along the way, uh, particularly successes that have had an impact uh, even on the organizations that you come from and, and the landscape that you're uh, working in would be would be great in this session. So start with Chuck Haskell. You know, I think um, the Sustainable Agriculture Coalition has had a profound impact on um, particularly on conservation policy, and it's had a profound impact on programs and initiatives to provide uh, the same kind of support to farmers who practice uh, sustainable agriculture and organic agriculture as other types of farms. And, and that is in everything from marketing programs to special research programs. I mean, start out with a SARE program, at one point called Lisa, at one point called Bubba, you remember that. Um, and, uh, but it went much broader than that, building, um, you know, uh, building provisions into the, the large, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the latest name of it is, but the, the main uh, competitive grants program at the U.S. Department of Agriculture for um, sustainable agriculture and for economic opportunities. So I think there's been a profound impact on both uh, shaping conservation programs in America for agricultural conservation, but also in creating supports that mirror the kind of support that conventional agriculture has always gotten to, to sustainable farmers as well, in various arenas ranging from research to, to, um, to marketing and what have you. And, you know, I think, and sometimes I think we're, we're starting to see the impact of that beyond farmers who call themselves organic and sustainable. I was uh, visiting a farmer a while back uh, who was a real pioneer in no-till agriculture. And he's a really interesting guy. He uh, got started out in no-till, very conventional farmer. And as he did, he really got interested in soil health. Mm -hmm. And so now he's doing cover crops, he's looking at diverse rotations, he wants to figure out a way he can work some grass into his rotation. And it's remarkable to me, I mean, it's, I remember reading once that change always comes from the margins because new ideas come in on the margins. And eventually, even if, you know, you don't replace what is predominant with what was on the margin, you take elements of what was developed under the margins into the, the larger part. And now you start to see that interest in how diversity in cover crops can improve soil health moving from beyond organic agriculture into very mainstream agriculture, uh, no-till agriculture. And I think that's one measure of the influence that this movement and those public policy changes has created, has had. I mean, the biggest disappointment for me has been um, our inability to really crack the nut of the structure of agriculture. And I mean that, you know, the Center for Rural Affairs and myself personally have always kind of had one foot in conventional family farm agriculture and one foot in sustainable agriculture. And because both have been our constituency, both are what we care about, but what I care about. I came off a conventional, a conventional family farm and um, I believe that, that those farms contribute a lot to our communities and society. And our ability to, to really crack this, to, to, to change this trend toward driving those um, mid-sized conventional family farms off the land, um, 
That has been the most difficult and most, I think, frustrating part of this work for me. Uh, I feel like I've left a lot of my blood <laughs> on the floor in Washington over battles like payment limitations to try to get government to stop subsidizing um, driving mid-sized family farms off the land. Um, you know, and one of the other th things that is, I mean, it was so important about that work um, and that work about the structure of agriculture is it really did bridge a lot of the divides in agriculture. It, again, it, for the center, it was the bridge between sustainable agriculture and conventional family farms. It was a bridge between Democrats and Republicans in Washington, in all honesty. I mean, and, you know, where we would work most closely with Chuck Grassley on many issues was our chief uh, allies. I, I had more meetings with Chuck, more face-to-face -face meetings, private meetings with Chuck Grassley than any other high, high elected official ever in Washington. Um, and, you know, and it's, um, and I think that's been important. It's also built bridges between organizations. I remember when the, uh, the year uh, we won the statutory creation of the Value Added Producer Grant Program, one of the things that led to that was we went to, we worked with the Indiana Farm Bureau and uh, went to Indianapolis and did a press conference um, and meeting at Senator Luger's office with the Indiana Farm Bureau president. Um, and because of that, time, I can't remember who was in control of the Senate. I think the Democrats were in the control of the Senate and Luger was the ranking Republican at that time, the ranking minority member. Because of that, that we were able to win that program. And so those issues, I think, um, profoundly important to our communities, profoundly important to people, opportunity for people in rural America, and they were profoundly important in bringing us together across a party and uh, and uh, agricultural types, and uh, they, but those were the issues where we were up against the greatest power. It's really important to remember the how important federal policy has been to creating strong nonprofit organizations, too, who work with farmers. We've received at Practical Farmers of Iowa a lot of funding over the years that have helped make the organization really a powerful one today. Um, SARE is probably the best example. We might have had a dozen SARE grants over the years that helped us establish a really strong on-farm research and demonstration program. It helped fund a lot of field days where uh, conventional farmers are learning from other farmers about what works on the land. Just really important funding. And we've had up to 40% of our funding come from federal programs that NSAC has, has worked on. Um, the Beginning Farmer, Rancher, and Development Program, huge, huge uh, win for NSAC and other groups, helped many of us establish Beginning Farmer programs. Um, even sometimes programs that you might not think were especially a win, like the Individual Development Account uh, Program was a win, getting it in the Farm Bill, but it hasn't been funded. I remember meeting with a, a staffer from Senator Harkin's office about that, and I thought, hmm, that's a good idea. And we advocated for that with NSAC, um, but we started our own program after you know hearing about the how, how well that might work. And so ideas, you know, spreading through to other groups. Uh, from a farmer perspective, I, it's very clear that the Environmental Quality Incentives Program has been the big program for our farmers, given the number of conventional farmers we have. And close behind, behind that is probably conservation security, now stewardship program. Also many, many farmers enrolled in that. 
So just a lot of ways that we're a strong organization because of NSAC and the sustainable ag policies we have. Yeah, I wanted to build on that. I think uh, certainly the research side has been very valuable to all of our farmers that we work with. And we work with the whole spectrum of farmers as well. Farmers who are already trying sustainable agriculture, this helped them solve on the ground bottlenecks that they were having and give them resources to do it. And farmers who were conventional got to see something that was in research and published by USDA and gave it kind of a, uh, you know, a seal of uh, this is, you know, something you can, you know, take seriously. And sometimes uh, it also is a very small sentence that you're able to embed into a piece of legislation that can have a huge amount of difference. And I, I remember working with FERD on, on defining who would be these regional uh, committees for SARE. And in our region where we have, you know, two and three distinct land grant systems for black, white and Hispanic and Native American, those are very uh, different systems. And by naming those, those players and requiring them to be a part of that regional council, it really in many ways was able to have us bring uh, people who normally don't come to the table and really reflect our region uh, more honestly so that when we set priorities for sustainable ag in our region, we reflected better uh, who our region was and were able to actually help communities that were, were not getting money at a state level at all. So that's a, I'd say the model of how SARE is, is constructed is unique and, and I think it is something that is, uh, we must defend over time because uh, internationally this is still, we still hold up SARE as one of the best models of how to do participatory research priority setting within a stakeholder community that is multi-stakeholder. And that's very unique. There's nothing else like that out there. And that really, to me, is, is, is a, a piece of brilliance for, for our movement. Um, we stuck a little bit of language in the OREI saying, let's do a little bit of research on, on organic seeds. And if we hadn't stuck that one sentence in there, it has spawned research projects all over the country and funded uh, all kinds of uh, seed development. It was just like one little sentence in there about, uh, you know, this would be a research priority. And so sometimes it is a little thing within a big, big thing that can really uh, make a huge difference out in the countryside. So I think we need to always realize that uh, it's not always the big thing. Sometimes it can just be paying attention to the fine print and making sure that uh, you nail, nail that. We had big fights in the South trying to get uh, the uh, SARE program put in place. And if we had not have had that language, we would not have succeeded. A short comment to add to, to Michael's is uh, the sort of a side or additional benefit of the LISA program and then SARE funding for, for research and education is that it did allow nonprofits like ours to develop those partnerships with some of the land grant mm -hmm. uh, and extension people that would have been difficult to do without any money to throw on the table. So, uh, you know, that created some, some partnerships that we could carry on to you know, future work and, and endeavors. A quick follow-up is that I think that 
the research funding for SARE and for organic farming has changed the culture of the land grant universities tremendously. Before, sustainable agriculture was something we did not want to be associated with. Organic was way off the court, off the reservation, but now suddenly there's money and everybody's lining up for it. And so it changes the culture immensely. There's a lot of programs. It's a long list of programs that are in place now because of the work that the Sustainable Ag Coalition has done over the years. I think one of the signature wins, you know, everybody would agree is the Conservation Stewardship, Conservation Security Program. And what I remember was kind of how that got done in the early part. People have been talking about green payments for years, but nobody really had defined what they meant. It was this nebulous idea that everybody liked, but nobody could really explain. And so we had, I guess, the audacity of saying, let's let's figure out what that is. And we brought people together and there were you know, farmers and ranchers and policy wonks and spent a couple days kind of bashing each other through these ideas and came out with, I think about 10 principles that said, here's the things that a green payments program ought to do. So it was a huge first step to say, this is, let's define this thing. But then we didn't stop there. You know, the folks in DC started taking this around to, to folks in the offices on Capitol Hill, the folks in Iowa talked to Tom Harkin, um, the folks in the Minnesota project put together this cute little brochure on stewardship incentives. And if I remember right, they sent that brochure around to other groups and said, you know, put your own logo on this. You know, it was one of those sharing things and, and, and hand this around in your state. And so it was, that was the start of it. And obviously there was a whole lot of work to get the thing done, but it was, I think, um, a credit to the group that they said, you know, we can do this. And instead of just talking about what it, you know, what it could be, we said, let's really make this happen. And so I think it's a great testament to all the folks, many groups who were involved in making that happen. Going back to the SARE program, you know, it was the first accomplishment that we had together. And um, I think it's still, uh, warts and all, still incredibly important to the movement for a lot of the reasons people have said. And, um, you know, and it, it, it's, it's done a lot. We've asked it arguably to do too much, um, uh, which has sometimes been a problem, but it, it, it's really helped the movement so much from so many different vantage points. That being said, you know, we've only we've only successfully gotten it from four million dollars a year to twenty-two or twenty-three million dollars a year, far, far less than where we yeah. expected to be in nineteen eighty-eight when we started working on appropriations for SARE. I mean, honestly, I think we thought that we would be at fifty or sixty million dollars in a matter of years, and here we are at a third of that. So that's frustrating on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, many of the things that SARE did, like fund organic research, like fund beginning farmers, like fund direct marketing stuff, we've spun off into other programs um, that also have a fair amount of money behind them. So if you look at it from that vantage point, it isn't quite as stark as, as you might think it was otherwise. Um, and it's really an accident of history. You know, we would had had Sarah come along, you know, 10 years later, we would have been arguing for mandatory farm bill money for it and probably have succeeded. But because it was early on, we are locked into an appropriations uh, cycle on it. And um, uh, but, you know, which leads me to an, another point off of the Sarah point. But the, just what we've been able to do to change the way people think about the farm bill 
remember when we started and right on through till 1996, there was no money in the farm bill other than food stamps, commodities, and conservation. And conservation, of course, was only after as a result of the huge battle in the 1985 farm bill. So it was the newest of the three. And the smallest, though today it's it's of equal size. But the idea that the farm bill could fund rural development, that it could fund value added, that it could fund ag research, that um, it could fund you know local food systems, that was that was unheard of until we put that on the agenda first with the Fund for Rural America um, in '96, and and then really big time in the. 2002, even bigger in 2008 and 2014 farm bills, that, that there's very little appreciation for that today in Washington amongst newer people. They assume that's the way it's always been, and um, but that that really happened because we fought for every single one of those, and we got over the hump of making that a legit item for farm bill funding. So that's I think really really important. Uh, contribution. Would you elaborate a little bit more on that, Bert, on the on the share uh, why it's it's you know it's only up to twenty two. You touched on it, the fact that it's not mandatory, but what why why isn't it bigger? I mean, who's opposing it? What's going on there when it's such an important program? Yeah, so I, I think you know part of it is when when it started the other competitive grants programs at USDA weren't particularly large either. So it was one of a bunch of underfunded competitive grants programs. Um, and, and now fast forward to today where what's now the Agriculture and Food Research <coughs> Initiative or AFRI used to be called the National Research Initiative and had other names, but it, it's now so much, so much larger, and it's where all the ag research lobby time from other organizations goes into. And so there's um, now we're in a situation where we're the very small, um, not, I, I would say the agricultural research establishment and its political lobbying muscle in D.C. don't even they don't even think of it as being a sister program or a smaller offshoot. It's not even on that radar screen. And that's an increasing problem um, that we're still trying to figure out new strategies for tackling. Um, but it, it, it is problematic. And, you know, it's um, look at President Obama's budget proposal for this year. Proposed, I forget what, a hundred million dollar increase, something on that order of magnitude, or even more than that, slightly more than that, um, for the AFRI program and level funding for the SARA program. And, you know, until we can reverse that attitude, um, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, well, I'd like to pick up a little bit on Ferd's comment about uh, beginning farmers and, uh, you know, very grateful for all of the work that we've done to move that forward. But I think one of the problems that we have with that is that the general public is not very aware of the actual situation that we're facing in terms of the future of our farmers, mm -hmm. primarily because USDA still uses a 1947 definition of a farm, which is any place that produces $1,000 in gross sales or would have produced $1,000 in gross sales if that place had maximized its full production capacity. And uh, so the general public think, thinks we have, you know, 2.1 or 2.2 million farms, and that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, but um, 
you know, one of the things that Mike Duffy has pointed out when you break down the actual statistics now, as of the 2012 census data, 80% of our total agriculture sales in this country are produced by just a little over 158,000 farms. And almost six, almost half of our farmers are now over age 60, and only 6% are under age 35. Now, you can't project that very far into the future before we've got a serious problem. Now, on the other side, on the good news side, we have this new generation of millennials who want to farm. Uh, and, uh, you know, but they need access to land, they need access to affordable capital, they need access to the kind of markets that can enable them to get enough income to pay off their investment and have a decent life. That's really what they're asking for. And these are, you know, maybe we can talk about this more in the next section, but these are, I think, are some of the kinds of future policy issues that we should uh, uh, take a look at and see if there's something that we can do, especially about uh, uh, informing the public about our actual situation of the futures of farmers. Thinking about some of the accomplishments that we've had that might be underappreciated, that aren't the big ticket items or big programs. Uh, one that comes to my mind that uh, I've seen being important over time is uh, I believe that our discussions and lobbying really led to the development of the state technical committees and <clears throat> bringing more voices into the decision-making and planning around how money from the Natural Resources Conservation Service gets spent at the state level. And I've seen so many um, and talked to so many people who benefited from the types of cost sharing that I don't think would have been available without the input through the state technical committees, including I remember one of my proudest moments after I left involvement with the Sustainable Ag Coalition um, was working for the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. And uh, so I got to be on the state technical committee and when it was brand new. And one of the things that we were able to do was help develop organic cost share, cost share for organic practices, um, and bring Francis Hickey to the table to help. Uh, there was a small meeting with Francis and I and maybe one or two other people talking about what that might look like and start to plan for what kind of practices could we be planning to help support organic agriculture when just a few years before that, um, you know, nobody there probably would have wanted to talk about the O word again. And then since then, as I've worked on uh, communications with farmers through the ATRA program with NCAT and through case studies, um, talking with young beginning farmers or different kinds of farmers about how those cost share monies that I believe that we really help make possible um, have helped them has given me uh, a lot of satisfaction. So, As far as measuring success, I think it's important to measure it over time. And, uh, and how much money is appropriated to a program that our coalition pretty much created um, is not the sole measure. Uh, there's a critical time for many of our programs, such as the Wetlands Reserve Program, um, the uh, um, CSP program in particular, where they were under attack and other people were after the money. And so it's, it's a matter of persistence in not only winning it, but being there for it. 
there's also a matter of continuously improving it so that it develops more of a following and more public support, which is often a, a thankless job with administrators and rulemaking to try and get it right. But beyond that, it's the importance of a coalition strong enough that when it comes time for major budget cuts, that they back off of our programs because we're forced to contend with. And, and I, I really hope that people don't underestimate the value of that because it's very valuable. So I want to mention two or three, um, uh, again, programs that say something about how we function as an organization. One is organic. You know, we have a subset of our community that really daily engages in, and cares about organic, but as a community, we have embraced it. We've had, and that's been characteristic of a lot of the work we've done. We say, you know, I don't get wetlands, but I care about them because you do. And I will write my letter and I will call my member. And we've done a lot of that. We, and that's the virtue of any coalition is that we don't have to each know everything or care about everything. We have a level of trust in the quality of the thinking behind the processes behind our policy development that enables us to yield ground, accept, and get with the program, even when it's not our own strongest suit. That's been important, and organic is one of many examples of that. Um, but we've, as a community, worked with others. In fact, we've spawned uh, offshoots, you know, people, the organic, the National Organic Coalition, I think, has been a perfect example. A former staffer with the National Campaign who led it, Leanna Hoods, and a lot of her work. And then there's been a long, strong coalition with Michael uh, Sly and others really building a lot of work, which we have had staff working actively on and moving. So that's a whole area that's been really critical, I think. Um, an, a really interesting to me example of uh, the flexibility that this coalition has shown. When you consider that funders fund us to do certain things and they don't always fund us to do things that come up during the year. So a perfect example of that was about, what, I guess four years ago, I suppose, when we had uh, at one of our meetings a, a loud, resounding message that we needed to be working on food safety. And you know, people looking at each other, food safety, where do we get funding to do that work? No, don't worry, you gotta do it. <laughs> and I really think that we need to stop and notice that level of responsiveness, Ferd and the staff said, well, we have no funding right now to do the work that you are saying we need to do. We hear you, however, and really sought funding, worked like dogs to get more funding and operated without sufficient funding and really became the determining factor in the Food Safety Modernization Act passage and then implementation. Without us, there's no question that the whole food safety apparatus, which is such an impact on uh, small farmers and also medium farmers, sized farmers and organic farmers would be uh, very different from what we ended up with. And I think that's a really inspiring opportunity to see that Agenda setting, which has been one of our distinguishing traits. I think one of the things that INSAC's been known for is what some people call a hyper-democratic 
process of agenda development and distillation, but there are times when we've said, okay, we've made that our agenda and we hear you, we're gonna shift and add on to that. Um, and then the last thing I just wanna add to a, a point that's just been made about, uh, Dwayne, about implementation and rulemaking. You know, this point uh, about, I, I think Michael, you made about paying attention to the fine print We've done that very well, and I'll tell you, there's no finer print than rules. And there's could put you to sleep in a sec. And we have been given information on how to become effective with rulemaking. Had it not been for INSAC, none of us would have ever submitted public comments. And as a rule, as a consequence of INSAC, we've had a lot of impact. Uh, just like to look at the big picture. Um, uh, not so much about specific policy programs, but about our capacity for change. And I think there are a couple of things we need to recognize. Um, we are operating in a broken system. The system is very broken. Uh, our everything from you know we have decision makers we're trying to influence, and those decision makers are in place because of a broken system, money, elections. Um, and so we, ha I think we need to very much recognize that in that broken system, we can work for implement, uh, incremental changes, but somehow we need to keep recognizing that the system is broken and we sometimes need to retool in different ways. In addition, I agree that we're at the beginning of the next step we're at the end of the beginning and we we've made very much progress in the movement for local but that's that's only the end of the beginning and it's not enough and the so so we need to address more of the uh, barriers to sustainability um, the new barriers that arrive once we've come to that. Um, and also, I think a big challenge is race and equity. I don't know the answer on how to uh, address it. I don't think like we're going to, we are going to correct it. But somehow I think we need to find a way to work on it without losing the non-racial and equity or non-racial issues that we work on and keeping those in there at the table while working on race and equity. Um, very good. So Ferd, you want to have a last remark on this part and then we'll move in. We've already touched on it some, you know, in the areas of priorities going forward, but let's hear a wrap up on this. Yeah, yeah, just some random comments more than wrap up, but, um, Picking up on something Francis said earlier about his experience at USDA and what you could say and not say and what the culture was like and how it's changed over time. And I, I, I agree with that. It has it has changed for the better. But, you know, I, I addressed how we try to knock down the barriers that are preventing a more diversified, sustainable system from being in place. And I think we've succeeded to a significant extent on knocking down, not only knocking down barriers, but with equip and csp and other programs actually putting some incentives in place 
on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I think back to something Garth Youngberg told me when we were when we were first trying to do that campaign around the 1990 Farm Bill, and we were pushing for what became the Integrated Farm Management Program option. And he said, you know, you can put that into law, but speaking as a political scientist, <laughs> I will tell you that and knowing something about the culture at the Stabilization Conservation Service, it's going to be really hard. They won't even understand what it is you're trying to do and what you're talking about. And, you know, I, 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 I listened and I, I understood what he was saying. I didn't discount it, but I didn't think it would be the challenge that it is. Um, and, you know, that program did some things. It, it was a really long, difficult fight. And, and then luckily, in some ways, in 1996, we got full flexibility. And, you know, we played a really key role that people tend not to remember to get grass-based agriculture part of planting flexibility. Um, and, and so that sort of went away as an issue. And we started focusing on what First, the conservation farm option, if we can get that off the ground, then conservation security program and conservation stewardship program, thinking that, you know, if the ASCS FSA side of things was difficult and they didn't get it culturally, what we were trying to do, that somehow NRCS was going to be easier. And let me tell you, that has not been the case. Right up until right now, we have a new CSP five major point campaign as they're going through a major change in conservation stewardship program starting uh, for next year. And, and we're still at some of those same basic issues that we were working on in 1988 and 89 in terms of uh, how difficult it is to move agencies that are populated by people who think about agriculture in one particular way. Um, and so I, I just think, you know, we've made enormous strides, but Garth, Garth's method is always in the back of my head that, you know, it's more than changing the statute and changing the rules. It's changing the people and the culture um, that's so big. And so I think, you know, segueing forward to the future, that's part of it. And then uh, another big barrier, you know, in the sort of knocking down barriers is picking up on what Margaret said. So here we were, we had never worked on food safety. We had never worked with those committees in Congress. We had never worked with the Food and Drug Administration and we had zero, zero money in the budget for it. Um, but we adopted it and we set off on a legislative campaign. Mind you, who would start a legislative campaign when the legislation's already halfway through Congress? having just about passed the house by the time we got started. It was kind of insane. Um, so with zero budget and uh, very few Hill contacts and not all that much knowledge of the underlying statute, we launched in there and, you know, against the united opposition of both the produce industry by the major trade associations and the consumer groups, all of them, <laughs> We took on eight Senate amendments on the Senate floor. We won all eight of them. And then two years later, FDA is writing the rules. They sort of more or less ignored most of those amendments. Major grassroots campaign now, thankfully, we had a little bit of funding, not very much, but a little bit. And we got FDA to do something that 
is fairly unprecedented in the federal government, which is to repropose a proposed rule. And while not perfect, they've certainly come a lot closer to where they needed to be. So um, that that I think um, is is a is a testament to how much we address barriers uh, or you know, could be barriers in that case to what we're trying to accomplish and how we can pull grassroots and DC policy together on, almost on the fly in this particular case um, and succeed because of it. We, we could not have done that had we not been through all the other legislative battles that we've done and how the model and how the grassroots and how all that has come together. We couldn't have dreamed of doing that um, without that kind of track record. But um, I think that in terms of the responsiveness to what a new set of players from newer member organizations of the coalition bringing forward and saying this is critical and then addressing it and, and doing it, you know, the jury is definitely still out. The thing hasn't been implemented yet on the ground or we'll see what happens. Um, much could still go wrong, but we're clearly in a much better place than we would have been um, had it not been for those interventions. So I just wanted to call attention to that. First comment, remind me of one thing, and it speaks to the, I think, the importance of the broad set of relationships that have, are developed among all the players in this group and how important it is to have those relationships that transcend some of the boundaries we deal with. Ferd mentioned getting planning flexibility um, in the 96 Farm Bill. And I, if my memory serves me correctly, part of the way that happened was we were getting told, no way the cattlemen will allow that. And we made a call to David Burkholder, uh, who runs a commercial feedlot in central Nebraska, um, was, I think at the time, maybe the head of the National Cattlemen, but also was an alfalfa dehyde guy, and called him and said, hey, this doesn't make any sense. And he got cattlemen to say it was okay. And it's, I mean, I just... Having those relationships where we transcend, where it's not just the sustainable ag people, but it's us in relationship with other people, trying to be straightforward and honest and decent to each other, even as we disagree on some things, it's really important and makes a big difference. And was a has been a key to success. It's a great way to, I think, kind of put a little bit of a period on this this part of the discussion and move more deliberately now towards looking towards the future. Uh, I'd like to have, let's say, the next half hour be kind of devoted to that. Be thinking about like what is really needed sort of in the big picture of moving into sustainable agriculture in the United States. I think we stay pretty focused on the United States. And then uh, what's that going to take both externally Big picture, and also what's it going to take for uh, NSAC? What's, how's it going to achieve what it needs to with a continuing struggle with limited resources and stuff? We certainly aren't going to solve that here today, but I'd just like to get, the, get some of them highlighted. And we'll do the same format, two or three minutes, uh, and then we'll pop over to somebody else and uh, do what we can with this next uh, period of time. And, uh, and uh, Margaret's already spoken some, but Mary raised her hand, so if you don't mind, we'll start with... With Mary and go from there. I just wanted to start with saying that one thing that we haven't recognized is that uh, uh, everybody is sustainable now. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the language has changed. Uh, I remember working with uh, um, 
a dean at the, the land grant who said sustainable isn't even a word. You know, it, like it's not in the dictionary. Um, I don't know what dictionary he was using. Um, but everybody is. And so it has changed the definition to some extent. You know, Monsanto is, is sustainable and all of the other companies have their, all their advertising that's geared toward that. So I think we have to, to think about that as we move forward and have to, to keep pushing, not that we want to get involved in a whole definition thing, not at all, but keep expanding that definition and making sure that we're talking about ecologically based, uh, biologically based um, farming systems. And again, system is a real important word to that. A um, couple other comments uh, to make quickly. Um, challenges, um, the whole issue of conservation cuts in a time of climate change. I don't think we've mentioned that yet today. Uh, what's going to happen uh, here, here at a time when we should be paying more attention to soil health and, and adaptation and so forth and water resources, uh, they're cutting the programs. And uh, I think that's part of that sort of public education, uh, getting it out there that these are the problems of, of agriculture and food production. Um, and another challenge is the, the, the attitude among a lot of farmers that we work with, conventional and, and otherwise, is a, a strong, you know, anti-government um, attitude that uh, I don't need any more government programs to tell me what to do. Uh, and part of the problem is that the, we need those programs to also tell people what not to do, but we continually want to focus on voluntary programs. And I think that's necessary, but to get there, we have to have a really strong awareness among not only the farmers, the conventional farmers, the sustainable organic farmers, but consumers as well, what it takes on the land to uh, uh, actually produce food. Oh, I'd like to put two things on the table as we think about the future. Um, first of all, uh, at least in my experience, working with my own colleagues in sustainable agriculture, we're still pretty much focused on how to make the current system a little less bad. and. Uh, that's not going to take us uh, productively very far into the future because uh, everything that we, whether we're organic or conventional or CSA or whatever kind of agriculture we're doing, uh, we're doing it on the basis that all of the inputs that we've been using, which are relative, have been relatively cheap and abundant, are simply not going to be there. Uh, the fossil fuels, uh, you know, are not going to be there cheap. Um, if you take uh, rock phosphates as an example, back in 1961, we were only paying $80 a ton for rock phosphates. Now it's $700 a ton. And all the statistics I've seen, we only have about 20 years of rock phosphate reserves left in this country. Uh, and then we're using up our freshwater resources and we got more unstable climate. So we really have to start thinking now about a future uh, that's very, very different. And then how do we have a sustainable agriculture under those circumstances? So I think we have to, in our public policies also, and I, and I know this is going to be very difficult because people aren't ready to think about that, but at least we need to think about how are we going to reframe ourselves as we move into this new future to really rethink the way we're doing sustainable agriculture. And I, I think one of the resources that I've seen recently that are very, very helpful in this is a book by uh, Ehrenfeld and Hoffman called Flourishing. And um, 
you know, their whole point in their book is that we currently think about sustainability in terms, again, as I've said, in terms of, you know, making these few modifications, you know, if you just use LED light bulbs and, uh, and you uh, buy a hybrid, hybrid car, et cetera, you know, then uh, you're kind of there. And uh, that's not gonna prepare us for the future. So how do we begin to at least think about what kind of public policies we wanna promote under those two circumstances? The second thing, which is the good news side of what I wanna think about in terms of the future is that, uh, uh, and this is about 10 years ago, one of the many conversations I had with Bill Heffernan, whom you all know, who did more research than anybody else in terms of the concentration in the food system. And about 10 years ago, he told me, he said, if the, current, if the industrial food system were to choose an appropriate logo for itself, it would be just eat it. <laughs> and he said, we've, we've created a culture where we simply have passive recipients. And so people go into the restaurant or into the supermarket and they buy whatever's there and they don't have any questions about it. But he said, and that already 10 years ago, he said, that logo is rapidly disappearing because we're now seeing the evolution of a new community of what he called food citizens. And these are people who are actively engaged and they want to know where their food comes. They want to know what's in it. And that's the new community that we have to think about. And um, so I think that as I think about this, and uh, as I said earlier, you know, coming from North Dakota, I've never been terribly optimistic about what could happen at the national level. And of course, Ferd and others have changed that in my mind now. But um, I think that uh, we, uh, have, we, we, we need to begin thinking about now how we are going to, uh, to take advantage of this new community of consumers. And, and as you all know, uh, uh, many of our uh, major food companies are already beginning to do this. You've even got companies like, like McDonald's now who are changing, you know, where the, the kind of food that they're going to use in their, in their restaurants. So uh, right now, I think we all understand that the primary control of our public policies, particularly in Washington, comes from the vested interests. So you've got the input suppliers, you've got the food processors, you've got many of the commodity groups all who have made huge investments in the current system. So they're gonna do everything they can to keep the current system going as long as they can. And of course they have all the campaign funding, et cetera. So they, they pretty much have control of, of, of what in the larger picture of things are gonna happen in it. But as this new community of food citizens emerges, which are primarily in our urban communities, you're gonna see the development. And we're really seeing to this to some extent, this population of voters who want to see changes. And therefore, I would predict that within the next 10 years, you're going to see more of a balance between the food citizens and the vested interests. And then I think there's going to be much more opportunity to make the kind of changes we're all envisioning and thinking about. And so we should begin thinking about preparing for, uh, for that kind of future, I think. I wanted to follow up on this uh, challenges looking ahead. And, and clearly, I think Fred pointed to part of the elephant in the room is that uh, at, the, at, the macro, at the macro level, a lot of what we have done has really been about a pro-democracy movement, if you will, with a little d. You know, that we're, we're you know, I, I go home to the family barbecue and we have these big debates because I have a wide family with a lot of political different views in West Texas. And uh, one of the areas where we can find common ground is when we start off with this argument that, you know, government is bad, that we just need to get rid of government. 
Then we go back a little further and say, well, maybe the reason government's bad is because of the power of special interests in, you know, taking over the role of the government. And that's where I find the common ground. And I think that um, we can make common ground when they understand that it's really the special interest that is undermining the democracy and in terms of being able to get someone to vote right or being able to get someone to actually carry out some policy that is in the interest of, of the public good. So I think Fred is right that we're at this tittering moment between uh, private gain versus public good. And partly I think we have to be careful that we can shift into a proactive mode and not be caught in a reactive mode. I, I you know, we, we, this last farm bill was horrendous. I mean, we, it was Herculean that we came out of that process with the program still somewhat intact because the attack on the other side was so vicious. And so in looking into the future, we, I think we have to have more cross-movement uh, coordination. We've got to tap into these, these food eaters and these urban players who may have no immediate understanding of, of rural America, but without those critical partners, not necessarily to become part of INSAC, but to bridge that because, you know, we're not going to get to the shores of sustainability through environmental stewardship alone. We, we have to address justice. And so, you know, we don't want INSAC to take on too much, but we have to cross those barriers and build those relationships if we're to really get at the structure issues, because that's what it's going to take to to really turn that lever. The local food movement has really expanded dramatically in recent years, and the number of groups in NSAC who are uh, food-related has expanded as well. One thing that's a challenge for our future is to keep farmer-focused. Here's a good example. Fruit and vegetable producers I know are either not profitable or netting very little and um, why is that? Well, they just don't, you know, they just don't get enough for their product. What policy solutions are there that, that can help? That is a real elephant in the room. Um, we all love local foods. We all want farmer's markets. Uh, but if you can't make a living doing that, it, it's a big problem. So the, the crop insurance issue, NSAC is already taking on. They have not had crop insurance for the most part. That's a, a, a big help. Where else in the policy area can we help in that area? We need more people eating fruits, fruits and vegetables. We need to get those into our school systems. We need um, vibrant uh, programs in hospitals, all of that. But the farmers are just not profitable. So a, a few things. One, picking up on Mary's point that everybody's sustainable today, um, and, and that really has changed the conversation for good and for bad. Um, the, 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 the looking forward policy part of it, I get, I, I get questions all the time. You weren't at the sustainable supply chain X, Y, or Z event. I mean, every single month, someplace in the world, usually at some expensive place in the world, <laughs> there's some sustainable supply chain for X, Y, or Z commodity or whatever. I mean, they're just happening all the time. And that has, you know, percolated into the funding community, which is 
probably more interested today in funding supply chain policy initiatives. They're not policy initiatives, they're marketplace initiatives, but um, then they are in funding policy initiatives. So, uh, and, and in no way, shape or form am I knocking supply chain initiatives, but I do think that we have a task ahead of us is to try to figure out what the intersections are for good and for bad between policy and supply chain initiatives, especially those that are sustainable in name only. Um, so I think, I think that's an emerging area and I don't know who's given that a lot of thought. I certainly haven't, but I'm really interested in it. And then um, building on what Fred and Teresa said about local regional food and food policy, there, that's also, um, you know, we. I feel like we've come full circle in the 1970s there was this big focus on let's talk about U.S. food policy, and then that sort of went away. And now it's back again, really big time. And when I go to some of those meetings, I, I, I always go in with one expectation about what I think it's going to be about. And it, it turns out the agenda is really different. It's rarely ever, even, even the word farmer might not even turn up in the discussion. You know, you could sit through a two-hour meeting and nobody's talked about production. Um, and so that's another big area. I think there's going to, just like the supply chain thing, I think there's going to be more talk about, you know, creating a better U.S. food policy and food almost treated as a, a vacuum from, from the rest of the supply chain. So I think that's an area that we need to look at. Another one that gets probably too little play, uh, but is really important is just the downsizing of the government in general, but of USDA in particular. USDA is 10% smaller than when the Obama administration started. That has, you know, that might create, you know, shouts of joy from some of our libertarian parts of our community and some of the anti-government attitude out there, but from a program delivery point of view, and you know, here we are fighting for our programs, making sure each agency is paying attention to us. And you know, if you take out those human resources, then we no longer have internal champions. And it's it's quite likely that you know the people working on our issues are, are not going to be at the top of the list in terms of who gets downsized. So. Um, I think we need, and, and we had a secretary of agriculture and a president who say we have to cut the farm bill conservation budget because we don't have the people to deliver. That's a real problem. Um, I disagree with their analysis, but you know, the fact that they will say that publicly is a real problem for us. So I think that's a problem. And the last point I'll make is that, you know, we, I think as an organization are about to start a several year concerted effort to reform crop insurance. And um, it will be, if we, if we decide to go forward with it, um, it will be a really major undertaking. You know, we've had a social contract on the commodity side. You know, it hasn't worked perfectly, but there was, a, you know, there was targeting, there was means testing, there was conservation requirements. So we've got conservation requirements back into crop insurance as a result of the 2014 bill, but none of those other things are there. Um, and talking about reforming a social contract on, a, on what is now the largest ag subsidy program um, ever uh, is going to be a massive undertaking. So if we're serious about that campaign, um, that's not 
super long term. That's more midterm, but it's going to be. It's going to. I can rest assure everybody. It's not like we're going to go out there and win it all in the next couple of years. It's gonna. It's gonna be a long term effort if we're really going to try it. And it, and it's you know at a nine to ten billion dollar a year program, we better pay attention to it for access reasons, for structural agriculture reasons, for conservation reasons, for environmental reasons, all of it, it's all impacted by it. So I think that's gonna be a biggie. Well, as you think about the future and about maybe this generation, the founding generation of NSAC, um, you know, uh, handing the reins over to the future, two things that seem worth uh, just thinking about to me, although they maybe go without saying, but I'm not sure of that. And uh, that is that process is maybe almost or even more important than policy sometimes. And I think NSAC has been a really incredible um, example of that. And that is the process of relationship development and trust building and sharing resources that uh, brought members uh, together with the farmers to build courage and hope that change could be made that um, I think have really made this so unique and powerful. And so <clears throat> I think it's important to think about how to hand some of that forward to the future. And then Another piece of that that I've often thought of through the years is that to me, um, I've always so had as a touchstone, um, it was a Barry Commoner's first law of ecology, that everything is connected. And um, to me, NSAC has really helped sort of implement uh, that in the world to help us connect and connect our issues with other issues and see where the overlaps are, see how, what, you know, and we do is uh, on environmental policy affects um, how people are living in communities out on the land and social justice and um, uh, energy, uh, so many things. So I just think that it's important to keep that, those principles in mind as we move into the future. I was thinking along very much the same lines. I was thinking about uh, leadership development within our community and uh, the fact that, that everyone sitting in the room came from, and we're all white, we all came from, to one degree or another, privilege that we probably didn't examine very carefully, and we've been invited, in fact, obligated in recent years to understand in new ways and uh, it carries a whole lot of new obligation for us, I think. As a, as a movement, we defined the issues as they were brought to us by the people whom we worked for. And those were mostly white people. They were mostly people not dealing with historic racial injustice. And yet, those people who weren't our immediate constituents were affected by the work we did. They were unknowing stakeholders of the work we did. And I think it brings a challenge to us as we think about our future. How do we speak to, engage, and help cultivate leadership and, and find new processes that are honorable, 
just hope-inspired processes for people who have historically experienced repression, injustice, and have had very little hope in many cases. How do we bring them into this process, this democratic process of understanding the interrelationship of rural and urban, of consumer and production, of government and citizen, and have it be not just a crazy mess, which it could be. We've often dealt with some crazy messes. And we need to make sure that as we go forward, it is a fully engaged and responsible process. So that's a very important process that I think we have not historically had uh, as strong an understanding of as we have now. I mean, if this past year didn't inform us all about <coughs> privilege and racial privilege and other kinds of privilege, then we really haven't been listening or paying, a, you know, care, caring the way we need to. I also have really appreciated Michael's comments about our doing what we have done in a democratic structure based upon assumptions about democratic process. And we've been able to go to Chuck Grassley and talk with him. And we've been able to find, we've been able to cross bridges. And we are currently operating in a period where uh, some of the elections and our democratic electoral processes are creating a different face of government of, of, of Congress. And we need to understand how we can find our power, notwithstanding that and use it, and, and uh, it's a tough one. That's gonna be a really hard challenge for us, but we, we can't give up on it. We just have to know that we're having a very different Congress than we've had. The last thing I'd like to say is that we do need to cross bridges and find constituents <coughs> who are mainstream farmers. I really appreciate the idea that our issues can serve a lot of people who often just blindly follow whatever their commodity group tells them to think or their farm group tells them to think. And in fact, a lot of our agenda can serve a tremendous number of farmers in this state, I mean, this in this country, and a lot of consumers in this country. And I would love to see us use the assets we have, like some of the conservation programs. I loved, for example, Teresa talking about EQIP and how powerful it is in the lives of the farmers with uh, PFI. And I find that in Wisconsin too. Southwest Wisconsin's got a lot of farmers using EQIP and CSP. So let's use the programs we've got to find that common ground with farmers on a person-to-person -person basis that can help, help us get out of the boxes of prescriptions, policy prescriptions handed to them and help them find the common ground that allows the kind of conversations, Michael, you have with your relatives in West Texas. I think that's gonna be a really critical part of our future. I'd like to focus in on, on a more specific issue um, and make some suggestions for to plant some seeds maybe for policy. And that is water quality comes and goes, you know, comes and goes. But now in the Midwest, we're hearing a lot about water quality. And you've all heard about the combined water works and nitrate. Pursuing the water districts, and this is like a crisis, but what's gonna happen here? Um, my suggestion is that look at the Farm Bill 85 or conservation compliance came in. Farmers were required to have a soil conservation plan. And they have to meet tea on their farm. And aside from the politics of tea, they all do it. And it's not a big problem. I'm suggesting that we need a tea for nitrogen and tea for phosphorus um, for every farm. And, and the thing is that the reason is that the science today tells us that we, we, we've been mistaken. NRCS has nutrient management plans. And that basically says don't apply more nutrients than, than the crop needs. But that 
The research shows that only will account for 10% of the nitrogen. Most of it is the fact that corn and soybeans are inherently leaky. They're going to leak nitrate whether you do it right or not. And so um, we need something new. And this might even be getting at the structural change. You know, that We need cover crops. We need perennials. We need something different. But most farmers don't even understand it. They, they argue against it. The Farm Bureau puts out the disinformation campaign. And so it's a total confusion. But if we could have um, required in the farm bill that every farm has to meet, and, and we know it's a dead zone. We need, in Iowa, we need to reduce our nitrogen by 42% or nitrate one. Remember, we need to reduce the phosphorus by 29%. We could take the, the water quality research data we have, put together a model like a universal soil loss equation, and we could have the farmers could put in their, their practices and it spit out if you're going to meet T for M or if you're going to meet T for P. And if you don't, you got to put some new practices in there. And so we could actually, in a quasi-regulatory fashion, which farmers may accept, we could really make some progress and, and achieve something here. So I just, I'm just thinking to throw that out to you guys who are doing a little work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just add a little bit to what Francis just offered in terms of this flashpoint of a rural-urban division that's happened through litigation. Um, essentially, um, customers of the De Des Moines metro area's waterworks were facing $160 million infrastructure cost. And their board identified that uh, litigating uh, against the polluters was probably a better use of their resources than jumping into a $160 million infrastructure investment. And, uh, and from a standpoint of building rural urban support and cooperation, um, it's the wrong direction, obviously. At the same time, it's the lowest income who have the most at risk if we don't make polluters responsible for doing more of their own cleanup. The element I'll add here is that the, the nutrient reduction research done through Iowa State University identifies that we can do everything possible working with farmers and it still won't be enough uh, because we actually have to do treatment within a landscape scale that it's going to take targeted riparian buffers, it's going to take targeted treatment wetlands, it's going to be a very large investment. Um, and so I think part of the upcoming challenge for a sustainable ag coalition is because politicians are so bad at planning, setting goals, prioritization, accountability, that we have to be the ones to be technically sound and to speak the truth of the science says the easy answers are not going to do it and we're going to continue to have flashpoints because we have not uh, basically come to grips with the reality of what's going on here. I believe we really need to recognize that to make the changes we envision, we have to think about a movement and NSAC is not the movement that is very key in it. So while we're being strategic in building alliances and partners, we need to help <clears throat> keep NSAC being, being very strong and showing up what it can do <clears throat> and staying focused. And at the same time, use that trust that we've identified that has worked. Um, and uh, extend a little bit on what we're working on that might not be in our immediate uh, bucket, 
So those kind of strategies, as well as scraping at the broken system to try and improve it. So that kind of three-pronged thing is staying focused, keeping our organization strong, recognizing that the movement is bigger, so having alliances with others and working to change the system that is really broken. I think those are important things for us to move forward in the future. Yeah. One of the keys of this organization is, is its people. And so I think one key is that we work to keep active farmers engaged. That's always going to be important. And the other thing, you know, for every organization, um, the transition from its founding staff is the most critical point in its history. And I think we have, this organization has benefited so much from FERD and so much of its strength is invested in his intellectual and relationship capital and the respect for his knowledge of issues that we have, as an organization, it's really gonna be critical to be serious about the transition that has to occur when FERD decides it's time to stop. And that's really critical to the future of this organization. That's a very, very good way, I think, to end this in, in, a, in a way, because in fact, that was really what sort of sparked the fact that I got thinking about how we needed to have a gathering in this archival process, because didn't want to lose the wisdom, not only from FERD, but from all of you, as we try to figure out all of us how we're going to go forward to advance sustainable agriculture. So thank you very much for that, and thank you for all your comments and cooperation. Thank you. Thank you. Can we go off camera now or? Well, I just want to say, I have, one, I have one, one of the critical <laughs> players in INSAC's development and later in its funding and in its support for many years and in many ways was you, Ron Cruz. And I feel like, feels funny to me to have you on the other side of the table when we're talking about early founders when you were such a central founder. I'm hoping somehow we're given an opportunity to focus upon some of that. Um, in this documentary. <laughs> <laughs> this has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.